One night, back in April, Ben Lay and his wife were at home in Nashville. They were trying to unwind, so they settled into a game of chess. But Ben could hardly focus. They were about a month into the pandemic, and he was worried. He's a gig worker and had already lost a few jobs. You know, I can't drive Lyft. You know, the uh, my research analyst and office assistant job, uh, I was furloughed um, indefinitely from that. How would they pay rent or their bills? What would the next six months look like? And that's when it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. His mind raced to November. What am I going to do come election day? He is someone who takes voting really seriously. And he even volunteers at his local precinct on election day. But... Oh, that's not going to be possible. Not this year. Ben is 31 and a two-time cancer survivor. He was first diagnosed when he was just 16. Because of the chemo, he's now immunocompromised. And during the pandemic, he doesn't feel like he can risk his health by voting in person. Then it smacks you in the face where it's like, you think and you get terrified I'm not going to be able to vote because it's not safe for me to leave my house. His wife is also immunocompromised, and he worries that if they get sick, they'll have to take on even more medical debt. So Ben figured they need to vote by mail. And um, did you sort of immediately think that you'd be able to get an absentee ballot? Yeah, oh, of course, because why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Why, why, why would it be difficult in any way to vote by mail? Well, it turns out for many people in Tennessee, it can be nearly impossible. And really, across the country, voting this year is going to be messy. Just look at what happened during the primaries. Wisconsin forced the citizens of the state to go out and vote in the middle of a global pandemic. At least 19 people who voted in person or worked at a polling site that day tested positive for coronavirus. Louisville's only voting location pounded on the doors, demanding to be allowed to vote. Nakima Williams, who is a state senator, actually sat in line for over five hours. Problems at the polls in Georgia. Some voters waiting for hours to cast their ballots. And who you are, where you live, can determine how long you wait in line to vote. Researchers found that Black and Latinx voters are more likely to wait in longer lines than white voters. And rich people typically face shorter lines than poor people. Then there's just the reality that maybe you can't afford to wait in line for almost a full workday or find safe transportation. So it makes sense why many people would want a mail-in ballot. And in most states, you can get one. Not a problem. In fact, many have gone out of their way to make it accessible to everyone because of the pandemic. But there are still six states, including Tennessee, that are not doing that. Which brings us back to Ben and his wife. Because even though they're immunocompromised, in their state, that's not a good enough excuse for a mail-in ballot. Leaving them with a hard choice. Do I leave my house and exercise my right to vote, but risk my life and the health of my loved ones to do so? Or, you know what, I'm just going to play it safe. I'm going to stay home to protect my health and the lives of my loved ones, and I'm going to forfeit my fundamental right to vote. How's that not voter suppression? And in fact, civil rights groups had the same question. Since the pandemic, more than 100 lawsuits have been filed to expand voting by mail. For the ACLU, it's been the single biggest voting-related issue of the year. 
they've already taken on 16 court cases across multiple states. And in May, they decided to take on Ben's fight. We decided to sue the government, to sue the governor of Tennessee, to sue the secretary of state, to sue the coordinator of elections, so that people like us, and frankly, any Tennessean who wanted it, could vote safely without having to risk their health or the health of their loved ones. I'm Rima Hres, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a show from Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. This week, we have two stories about voting. First, we look at the drama unfolding in courtrooms across the country over mail-in ballots. And later in the show, we go back in time to explore how money and power have always dictated who can and can't afford to vote. Ben remembers the day back in May when they filed their suit against Tennessee and how that felt. Very, very excited. Very, very nervous. This is uncharted waters for both my wife and I. The case is a little complicated, but basically the ACLU represented Ben and a couple other plaintiffs. Two of them are immunocompromised and one of them isn't. We talked with Ben because he's the main plaintiff. Voter suppression has affected people that do not look like me way more way, way, way more than it has affected people who do look like me. Ben's white, and he says this is the first time he's dealt with a major barrier to voting. But really, this case is bigger than Ben. It's about expanding voting access to all people in Tennessee, especially during a pandemic that disproportionately impacts Black people and people of color. The Tennessee Supreme Court heard the case back in August. Ben remembers that Wednesday morning super clearly. He and his wife slept in, made a nice breakfast, put on some comfy clothes, and opened their laptop. And 10.30 sharp, the Zoom starts, and the clerk gavels everybody, you know, they gavel everybody in, and they're announcing who's on the call. And The Honorable Supreme Court of Tennessee is now in session. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Well, welcome. It honestly feels a bit dystopian and, frankly, ironic watching these justices sit alone at their desks or in their home offices, staring into a laptop camera, debating on Zoom, whether it's safe enough for people to go vote in person. We also welcome those of you who are watching us through live stream on our YouTube feed. A lawyer representing the state kicks it off. She says, under Tennessee law, you can get an absentee ballot if you're hospitalized, ill, or physically disabled. But just being afraid of getting sick? Not a good enough excuse. It doesn't mean the fear of contracting COVID-19 or the fear of being exposed to someone with a disease. And really, this is what the court spent the most time focusing on, on people who are scared of the risk. Here's the state's lawyer again. There is not a way for the state to completely eliminate the risk, and the law doesn't require the state to completely eliminate the risk. The ACLU lawyers representing Ben and the other plaintiffs shot back. If everyone without an obvious condition is forced to go to the polls, asymptomatic carriers can spread the virus to other voters or poll workers. Especially because, and this is important, Tennessee is not requiring face masks at the polls. Under this logic, the state can say, you have the right to vote. Polling places on fire. You might be subjecting yourself to smoke inhalation. You might be okay. You might not be. But don't say we didn't give you the right to vote. 
The hearing went on for about an hour and a half. And then, just like that, it was over. We closed the computer, and we just sat there, and I put my arm around my wife. Yeah, and we just sat there. We reached out to the state for comment, and they pointed us to a memo. They argued that the burden to voting in person for most people is only, quote, moderate during the pandemic, and that the threat of fraud with mail-in ballots is far greater. Though I should point out, states that have already expanded mail-in voting have found very few cases of fraud. So you might wonder, which party benefits from restricting mail-in ballots? You'd think by looking at President Trump's Twitter feed that it would be Republicans. He repeatedly bashes mail-in ballots. And that makes sense. Conventional wisdom is that when fewer people vote, Republicans benefit. And when more people vote, Democrats benefit. But what studies actually show is that when it comes to vote by mail, better access just means more voters from both parties. Going back to Ben's case, it took about a week for the court to make a decision. Ben kept checking his phone until finally an email popped into his inbox. I got the email and the subject line read, um, Supreme Court decisions. It's a mixed bag. <laughs> okay. So you're a little Which, nervous reading that, I'm sure. It's It was a little nerve-wracking, but then you read the, the fine print and the decision starts to finally take this shape. And what did the first line say? Well, not what we wanted, but you and your wife are good to vote absentee in November. It was a partial victory. The court ruled that Ben and people like him in Tennessee who are immunocompromised or are caring for someone who is, can vote with a mail-in ballot. But the fear of COVID, the pandemic itself, that's not an excuse. How did that feel? Um, sorry, sorry. Um, it's the most amount of contradictory emotions I've ever felt in my life. There's so much joy and hope and happiness that you have, you and your wife forced the state to affirm that people like you can vote safely and exercise their right to vote in this pandemic without having to risk their lives. But at the same time, he tells me he feels terrible. He has this right, while so many other people still have no choice but to vote in person. Right now, the other states that still have strict requirements for mail-in ballots are Mississippi, Louisiana, Indiana, South Carolina, and Texas. On the other side of the spectrum, some states are proactively sending mail-in ballots and applications to every registered voter. And, you know, voting by mail, it is not a perfect system. Mail-in ballots are more likely to get rejected than ballots cast in person. And that's for a lot of reasons, human error or because the ballot arrives too late. But really, the advocates I talked with told me this is about giving voters more options so that everyone can pick the thing that makes the most sense for their life. Because otherwise, the fear is that people will be forced to make a choice between their safety and their right to vote. This is part and parcel of voter suppression. And in many cases, 
the kinds of voter suppression techniques that we see now are not that much different than the ones that have been used over the course of the last 150 years. Coming up after the break, we go back in time to look at our messed up history and how you can't talk about voting rights without talking about economics. It's easy to know you want to make a change in your life, but it is hard to actually do it. How to Be a Better Human from TED is a podcast for when self-help feels too daunting or maybe even unrealistic or just not for you. I'm Chris Duffy, the host of How to Be a Better Human, and trust me, I do not have it all figured out. But join me as I talk to experts about actually attainable ways we can try to improve our lives, whether it's facing fears, setting boundaries, cleaning your house without feeling like a failure, or all sorts of other topics. Find How to Be a Better Human wherever you get your podcasts. Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. Maybe something that people don't realize is that voting rights and economics have been very closely tied ever since the founding of our nation. That is David Daly. He is a journalist and author of a few books about elections and gerrymandering. He is going to be one of our guides as we go through the history of voter suppression. I can tell the story, um, and I can try to tell it through the best economic lens that I can. (laughs) Okay. Also here to help us is Carol Anderson. She's a historian and an African-American studies professor at Emory University. And the author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Okay, so voter suppression. It is a huge topic, but I just want to focus on three crucial moments that really show the push and pull of voting access in this country. Three moments where we saw real change, for better or worse. And I want to focus on how money and power have always impacted who can actually cast a ballot. I kind of think of it as the stuff you may have glossed over in high school and completely forgot about, but it's pretty important for us to remember because it's led us to where we are now. This will probably surprise absolutely no one, but from the founding of the country in the 1700s, really there was only one group of people that could vote. White men who owned property. And that was the, the kind of belief that only those who owned property would be truly vested in uh, building and sustaining uh, this nation. Of course, that was absolutely illogical. 
It wasn't until after the Civil War ended in 1865 that states had to ratify the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Those are the ones that gave formerly enslaved people citizenship and Black men the right to vote. And once that happened, southern states like Mississippi started to freak out. Because at that point... Poor Blacks have, have joined with poor whites to work together politically to get into power. And that kind of alliance had rich whites in power going, okay, we got to stop this thing. (laughs) So to stop it, lawmakers crafted what was called the Mississippi Plan, which was a set of tactics baked into the state's new constitution to keep white people in power. And that is the first moment in history we're going to focus on, because this plan it basically kicked off decades of intimidation and suppression of Black voters. It was, it was very explicit. Um, these legislators were not hiding anything. And David says the idea of the plan spread throughout the South. There was a representative in Virginia named a, a Carter Glass. This guy was trying to convince other legislators to bring the Mississippi plan to Virginia. And at one point, someone asked, well... Isn't what you're talking about actually fraud and discrimination? And, he's, and he says, fraud, no. Discrimination, yes. Discrimination, why, that is precisely what we propose, to discriminate to the very extremity permissible under the federal constitution with a view to the elimination of every Negro voter who can be gotten rid of legally. And they'd find any way to do that, often by using poverty as a weapon. One of the stories that stuck out to me most was about a Black man named Cuffy Washington. In 1880, he stole three oranges and forever lost his right to vote. That's because Florida, where he lived, had turned petty crimes into felonies. They took the crimes that were most likely to be committed by poor Blacks and poor Whites, and they made those felonies that came with essentially permanent disenfranchisement. Another big tactic to stem from the Mississippi plan? Poll taxes. The poll tax was lethal. It was basically a fee you had to pay in order to vote. And politicians justified it by saying, hey, look, democracy is expensive. If we're going to have people working the polls and running these precincts, it's going to cost you something. And so one of the things that you see there is this rhetorical twist that puts the commitment to democracy not on the state, but on the individual citizen. If you really believed in democracy, you would be willing to pay this small fee. And even though white voters also had to pay, the tax was especially burdensome for Black people who were not as well off and in many cases were still working for their former enslavers. The poll tax amounted to 2 to 6% of a farm family's annual income. Imagine paying 2% of your annual income to be able to vote. And to make matters worse, the poll tax was cumulative. So the law required that when you turned 21, you were supposed to pay your poll tax. Okay. Say it takes you 20 years to be able to pay the poll tax. You owe 20 years of back poll taxes before you could cast a ballot. 
Oh, wow. So here you see poverty, societally imposed poverty, being used as the synonym for race, for blackness, mm-hmm. to, to block access to the ballot box. And then when Black voters finally did reach the ballot box, they had to deal with literacy tests designed to make them fail. Answering questions like, how many bubbles are in a bar of soap? Carol tells me about one of her old neighbors who shared his experience with a literacy test. He looked at me and said, oh yeah, I remember taking that literacy test down there in Georgia. They asked me, how high is up? All of these tactics were wildly effective at suppressing Black voters. Louisiana, where there are 130,000 Blacks registered to vote in 1896. By 1904, that number has dwindled to 1,342. In Alabama, it's so effective that you have 180,000 Blacks who are registered to vote, and that number dwindles to 3,000 people. It's chilling. In less than a decade, registered voters in Louisiana and Alabama dropped by 98%. These tactics, going all the way back to the Mississippi plan, worked. And they lasted for decades. In fact, for almost a century. And that brings us to our second key moment in history, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It wasn't until the 60s, which really was not that long ago, until some of these tactics became illegal. That is, is the crucial moment. This historic law finally got rid of things like poll taxes and literacy tests. The Voting Rights Act was landmark because what it did was it identified states that had systematically denied their citizens the right to vote and said there are these benchmarks. And if you fall under these benchmarks, then you're going to come under what's called pre-clearance, where you cannot implement any law dealing with voting unless it has been okayed first by the U.S. Department of Justice. And that's huge. That is huge. What Carol is saying here about pre-clearance is really important. Before the Voting Rights Act, states could pretty much do whatever they wanted. But now states needed to get permission from the Department of Justice to pass new voting requirements. You begin to see four decades of change. Some of it is slow change. Some of it is immediate change. Like, take Mississippi. In the early 1960s, only 5% of Black people were registered to vote. Five. By 1967, it was almost 60%. And that was just two years after the Voting Rights Act. It felt like the country was building a lot of momentum, and more Black people were getting voted into office. It was working across much of America, most of the South, um, until 2013. Oh yeah, 2013. That is our third point in history. When Shelby County comes along. In 2013, Shelby County in Alabama filed what became a really crucial lawsuit against the federal government. It claimed that Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, that's the part that required preclearance, was outdated. And the conservative majority in the Supreme Court agreed. The justices said that the Voting Rights Act was basically a relic of the past. 
because racism was no longer a factor in American society. Look, we've got all of these black elected officials. We have all of these Hispanic elected officials. Clearly, we have overcome. Um, And that the Voting Rights Act picked on the South. So now states could pass laws without getting permission from the DOJ. And so the states went hog wild. Texas, within two hours after the decision, implemented a voter ID law. And Carol says that voter ID law directly targeted Black people and people of color. For instance, your student ID from a state university did not count. Uh, 40% of those in Texas's state universities are Hispanic or African American. That ID didn't count. But your gun registration card did. And 80% of those who hold gun registration cards are white. Driver's licenses are seen as the main form of voter ID, but at the time of the Supreme Court decision, a third of Texas's counties didn't have a DMV. These were mainly rural counties with large communities of color. For people to get a driver's license to be able to vote, they'd have to go about 250 miles round trip. So people were going to have to finance this 250-mile round trip out of their own pocket. But how are they going to even do that if they can't drive? Exactly. So imagine this. You don't have a driver's license. You don't have public transportation. That's a significant economic burden. Um, That's a day off from work. That's childcare. That's the expense of the trip. It's the expense of any forms. Um, It might not be specifically uh, called a poll tax, but in many ways, that's exactly how it operates. In just a few years, more than 30 states passed new voter ID laws. And like David just said, there may not be poll taxes anymore, but for many people, voting still comes with a price tag. In Florida, actually, that's literally the case. Remember that story about Cuffy Washington and the three oranges? Well, you can see a pretty direct parallel in Florida today. The state requires that people with serious criminal convictions pay all their court fees before they can register to vote. It's all about putting small barriers in front of people that in the end add up and make it less likely for people of certain socioeconomic classes to vote. Since the Shelby decision, we've also seen states close more than 1,600 polling places, strike millions of people from voter rolls, and try to end early voting. The states say these changes are for budget reasons and to cut down on voter fraud. But like I said earlier, studies show that voter fraud is pretty rare. This election cycle is kind of like our fourth moment in history. Sorry, I know I said there'd only be three, but I don't know, pop quiz. (laughs) A lot of things are coming to a head right now. We're in the midst of civil unrest, a public health crisis, growing income inequality, and we're about to do the largest experiment ever with voting by mail. And, you know, thinking about the push and pull of voting access, and maybe I'm being optimistic here, but I feel like this could be a moment where access expands. And not necessarily because of laws or some single court case someone wins or loses. People understand what is at stake. There is such an incredible awakening in this nation. 
about how precariously perched democracy is. I mean, this is why you see people standing in line for hours. They shouldn't have to. Mm -hmm. But they're like, oh, no, I'm voting. This is why you see people banging on the doors in Louisville, Kentucky, demanding to be let in so that they can cast their ballot. This is why you're seeing the kinds of turnout in this primary season that is record-breaking. And I have heard people say, I will crawl through broken glass in November. So as much as our institutions have been debased and degraded, the people have not. Mm. And that's where the hope is. If you want to learn more about the history of voter suppression, you can check out our coverage at marketplace.org. Also, if you have any thoughts or just want to shoot us a note, you can always reach us at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. And I am on Twitter at Rima Reis. This is Uncomfortable is me, Megan Dietrich, Haley Hirschman, and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Our intern is Daniel Martinez, editing this week by Caitlin Esch. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Charlton Thorpe is our audio engineer. Satara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. And our theme music is by Wonderly. Also, special thanks this week to Michaela Bly and Catherine Winter for their help. This is Uncomfortable is funded in part by the Cy Sims Foundation, which supports advances in education, scientific research, and the arts. All right, I'll catch y'all next week. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy.